It was quite still in the hall just now in the sitting. <clears throat> Did you notice? What kind of stillness was it for you? <laughs> There's different kinds. Somebody just made that gesture. That's one version of being still. Yeah. There can be all kinds of stillness. Can be sometimes, oh, no one else is moving, I better not. Right? Sometimes it can be the sleepy stillness, some kind sometimes it can be a very deep and profound a restful stillness that is awake. Any other kinds I've missed? Well, the stillness where we're just steadily applying ourselves. We don't necessarily feel particularly still yet, but we're simply applying the simple instruction when I'm lost, and I notice, I go, oh, here I am, thinking again. I unhook, I drop back, I breathe out, and begin again. That, over time, also cultivates a stillness. That doesn't mean that all the activity has to go away. It doesn't mean that all the movements of the mind immediately stop or are eradicated. It's as we keep faith with the simplicity of the practice, the momentum, the busyness, the always wanting the next thing or always wishing I had the other thing. Each moment, even if you've only had one moment of mindfulness today, one moment puts a kind of a, a stake in that constant wheel of spinning and moving and on to the next thing and there must be something else. That that movement of the frenetic mind, we could say, which can also be translated as samsara, this cycle of birth and death, which we don't have to even look at necessarily in terms of physical birth and death. We can do. But even here and now where we, we want something, we get it, and then it's gone. Right? Where we're born... And we're kind of ejected on the other side of that when it passes. That that momentum, with a moment of mindfulness, starts to get halted. It gets arrested. But then the momentum carries on again. Has anyone seen that today? There might be one moment where you feel your foot upon the earth, where you get a glimpse of being with the body breathing. And then the movement starts up again. And slowly, each one of these moments of mindfulness acts like a... I like the image of the, the hamster in the wheel. Right? And the wheel spins, the wheel spins, that's the mind. And the appearance is... I always noticed that as a kid, the appearance of the wheel when it's spinning is that it's something solid. Have you ever noticed that when the, when the hamster gets off the wheel, the thing stops and you can see all the gaps between the rungs on the, the little uh, stairs of the wheel. But while the hamster's madly spinning, 
the whole thing seems continuous and very, very solid. One moment of mindfulness just halts that momentum. And over time then, those momentum, those moments gather their own momentum, a different kind of momentum. That is a momentum towards stopping, towards resting, towards still, more stillness. So how are you? After a day of practice, almost after a day of practice. I just want to invite you all to take a breath together. Just breathe in. And breathe out. So I want to reflect a little bit on this mind and somewhat on the theme, pick up the theme from yesterday of motivation to flesh it out a little bit more and give more context for that. read this piece from, I like it a lot, from uh, Stephen Batchelor, who's one of the guiding teachers here at um, Guy House. And it's from an article called Going Against the Stream. This practice is described as going against the stream. The stream is that momentum of our habits, actually, and tendencies that has us wind up in places and we wonder how we got there. Have you ever had that experience in your life? You know, and it's sometimes it's what motivates us and wake, wakes us up, actually. We suddenly find ourselves in a situation that doesn't feel good or it's confusing or it's dangerous or it's painful and we don't quite know how we got there. We don't understand the process of the mind that led us to that point. And that's the stream, in a way, the tide. And practice is described as going against the stream. There's a popular view, I think, that practice is about going with the flow. And it's not going with that flow. right? It's not going with that flow. So this is how he describes, some of you might have noticed something like this today. So the Buddha described his teaching as going against the stream. The unflinching light of mindful awareness reveals the extent to which we're tossed along in the stream of past conditioning and habit. The moment we decide to stop, that's what you've done. Maybe you've done it many, many times. But it takes a certain intention, doesn't it? The moment we decide to stop, sit, Come on, retreat, practice, look at this. He says, the moment we decide to stop and look at what is going on, like a swimmer suddenly changing course to swim upstream instead of downstream, we find ourselves battered by powerful currents we had never even suspected, precisely because until that moment we were largely living at their command. 
right? The forces in the mind, um, there aren't all terrible forces in the mind, I'm starting with this part, but the forces in the mind that when the Buddha spoke about awakening, he was saying these are the forces that get um, liberated, actually, liberated and do not uh, condition the mind anymore, the force of greed, of hate and of confusion. And normally we don't notice that process and we're living and acting according to those things. So sometimes what happens is on the first days and into our practice at different times is that as soon as we decide to stop and look at what is going on, we find ourselves battered by powerful currents we had never even suspected precisely because until that moment we were largely living at their command. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? Gosh, I thought it was about peace and harmony coming to Gaia House. I didn't know I was going to be told I I was stopping midstream and I get battered by these currents. It's not the only thing that happens and it's not the only possibility but it's a very normal part of our practice and one that is a part of our practice it's not a mistake so if you've noticed any currents in your mind today the hindrances are good versions of those right this is not a mistake you're on the map right even if it's thoughts you didn't even think you've had before you came here Does this ring bells for anybody? That's actually a question. (laughs) Please nod if it does. (laughs) Please shake your head if it doesn't, if it really doesn't ring bells. Yeah. Oh, that was a hand up. Okay, I thought it was a question. Yeah. Yeah. So if you notice that today, you're not off the map. Even though what gets us to the cushion isn't, we don't advertise in the program, day one, come and be battered by all those powerful currents of your mind. Great, I'll sign up. (laughs) Let me have a whole week of it. No, that's not what gets us here. I mean, the suffering of it may be what what gets us here. But that's not what we're hoping for is really going to show up when we get on the cushion. One uh, Zen master, Japanese Zen master, came to teach at the old guy house many years ago. It used to be a little place in the village over there. And uh, she, there's a, a funny story about him. Maybe I'll tell you that first. He came and he, he was invited to teach the retreat and he was told it was a silent retreat. It was a silent retreat center and he was the teacher but he was told it was a silent retreat center. And it was only on day two of the retreat when nothing had been said, <laughs> that um, some of the retreatants said, told, I think, told the staff, and they said, actually, you can give teachings as well. He said, okay. <laughs> Very relaxed. Very relaxed. Yeah, it's a silent retreat. Why not? Why not? Great teaching. But what he, one thing, one of my friends was a student of his, and she was traveling with him when he was coming through the airport long time ago before all the security checks as they are now and they but they still I think they asked the question are you carrying anything dangerous with you I don't know maybe there had been some alert at the time 
Hello, sir. Are you carrying anything dangerous with you? And he looked at the security guy and he pointed to his mind. <laughs> yeah. This. Everything issues, in a way, from the mind. All actions that the world has ever seen issue from this mind. Sometimes we like to think our mind might be different from some of the other things that issue from other minds, but if we look deeply enough, we see the seeds of any action that's ever happened in the world, both beautiful and terrible. The seeds of that are here. And in practice, our work is is one of cultivation, actually. One of cultivation. The word bhavana, um, which gets translated as meditation, can also be translated as cultivation. What are we cultivating here? Because depending on what is cultivated, that is what is supported. That is what grows. That is what bears fruit. And in practice, then, we are cultivating first a stopping, a gathering. It takes a while. We see these powerful forces. And we might not even call them powerful forces. That might sound too dramatic to you. It might just be, oh, I don't want to be here. Right? Which we don't think is a very powerful force. But if we examine it deeply, we see its root is no different from that wish to get away from our life. That wish to get rid of what is here that we don't like. Which is none other than the same force of aversion and hatred actually. So, I want to reflect a little bit on motivation because this is also something that can be cultivated. Um, one person asked, said something recently to me. She said, <coughs> sometimes I really genuinely feel like I'm in touch with a motivation to practice that is really for the benefit of all beings. Right, that there's a very deep, heartfelt depth that this study of our mind isn't just for ourselves, that it really has a benefit for all. And she said, and sometimes that's not there at all. Sometimes I hate people. Right? How do they fit together? How does that work together? Does it, does it mean that I don't really care? And that I am only hateful? What's true here? Because from the point of view of our ordinary sense of self, it has to be one or the other. From the point of view of looking into how the mind works, we see, yes, there's threads and uh, momentums and currents in us that are very beautiful, actually. Very beautiful, that lead onward, that lead toward more opening, toward more depth, toward more letting go actually, as well as all these painful and difficult currents that that we'll get to know also over these days. So from the point of view of looking at this, motivation isn't something static. We usually have very, very many mixed motivations. And I want to look at this a little bit um, for a number of reasons. 
One is, some of you have been practicing a long time and it's useful to reflect on our motivation because it can also change over time. It does change, actually, as we change. It's also useful to reflect on the motivation um, because it can be something that can be cultivated. There are many, many useful benefits. Maybe I won't tell you all the benefits of why I'm reflecting on it. I'll just tell you about it. All right, and then we can see what's, of, what's maybe useful to you or not in hearing about it. So if you were to highlight any one thing that got you to ask the question, and it may come in a number of ways for you, what am I doing here, what's this life about, I want to go meditate, um, I want to look deeply, I want to train this mind, I want to understand peace and harmony, whatever it is, what is it that got you there? What is it that got you there? And it may be many, many things. But a big motivator for many of us is dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. The Pali word for dis-ease, suffering. That gets many of us to be willing to stop in that stream and go, oops, hold on, what's going on here? What's going on here? And I think for many, the fact that the Buddha's teaching is very clear in pointing to the fact that it's actually about suffering and the end of suffering. It's a very clear headline. It's not saying you have to believe this or you have to do some of those it's, this is what it's about. Look at this, this existential issue. It's a big motivator for many. And to reflect on dukkha can be a skillful practice. In one of the traditions that I practiced in, every day there would be chanting in English, that wasn't lovely songs to sing, which is what I wanted. It was reflections, reflections on the teachings, just kind of mono-chant of reflections on things that can wake us up and get us to the cushion to look deeply. Things we know, but that we kind of overlook very often. And the reflections go something like this. Um, It's a part of a big long reflection and I'm trying to remember the part that's just about the dukkha. Birth is dukkha, old age is dukkha, sickness is dukkha and death is dukkha. Sorrow, pain, lamentation, grief and despair are dukkha. Association with the disliked is dukkha. Separation from what you like is dukkha. Not attaining your wishes is dukkha. In brief, it goes on, the five focuses of identity are dukkha. 
These are as follows. And then the teaching gets explained more clearly. We'll get there in a few days. First we'll stick with the dukkha part. Right? Birth, old age, sickness and death. What does that mean? Maybe we can see it in terms of the sickness and the pain that there can be in aging and dying. But birth? That's good news. Right? It's not asking us to start to have a pessimistic overlay on life. That is not at all the Buddha's teaching. And if we're not careful, we can take it on that way. Oh God, it's all doom. It's all dukkha. Let me get out of here. Right? That's not the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha was known as the happy one. Right? He didn't go, oh God, birth, old age, sickness and death. Oh, sorry guys, this is the truth. Right? He was the happy one. He'd looked deeply into this. This is what motivated him, in fact. His story that probably many of you know but is always worth reflecting on for me. is that as a, a guy in North India 2,600 years ago, he pretty much had it all. If you're still hoping to get something together that will f- fulfill you completely, satisfy all that restlessness, so you can put your feet up and say, done. Well, he had all those things, and he still wasn't happy. Right? He had... The best deal, it seems. He was handsome. He was—he had a beautiful wife, a beautiful child. He lived in the best palace. He had a palace for the warm season, palace for the rainy season, palace for the cool season. Sense pleasures provided to him to fulfill every whim. But that restlessness wasn't satisfied. And the story is that his father tried to keep him in this world of illusion, the world of, yes, yes, have more of what you want. But that core in us that doesn't rest, actually, until we look very deeply. That restlessness kept him going. He left the palace and he encountered what is called the four heavenly messengers. Heavenly in as much as they woke him up. Not heavenly meaning from another world. He's very earthed, the Buddha. He's not actually trying to get us to go away from here. There is a transcendence, there is a depth. But this is a very earthy practice also. So these heavenly messengers was his first encounter with sickness. He saw a very sick person. And he said to his attendant, what's that? He'd never seen one before. It woke him up. It shook his, his complacency, his view. He saw an aging person bent over struggling in their body. And he said, what's that? Oh, that happens to all of us. 
And it woke him up. It wasn't just a thought. It was a direct encounter that shook the complacency. He saw a dead person carried through the streets, as they still do in India, to be taken, to be burned. A corpse on a uh, stretcher. And he's, what's that? That's death. And again, it penetrated through the veils, the thickness, the opacity we sometimes have of not quite letting those things in. And then he saw a wandering sadhu, a holy man, a man who'd uh, given up the world, as there were many, many at that time in India. It was a, a big phase in history where there were enough resources that people could start this quest very sincerely. Right? And he saw a holy man dressed in robes, wandering, and he said, what's that? That's somebody who's gone forth, who's gone to look deeply into what this life is for, what it is. And it was that that took him from the palace into the life of practice that culminated later, some years later, in his awakening. And then the teaching that is still with us. So have you had any heavenly messengers in your life? Things that shook you. It may be those very same things. It may be something else you could tell your own story about. Sometimes it's shocking things that wake us up. It sometimes takes a shock to make us wake up. Sometimes it's quieter things. If you could tell us all right now, what have been your heavenly messengers to get you this far, <coughs> to get you to sit, to do one of the hardest, hardest things, actually, to sit and look at our own mind? Maybe it's that collection of the, one of the definitions of dukkha being separated from the liked, separated from what you, what you love, right? Association with the disliked, being, being with things we don't want, not attaining our wishes, not getting what we want. It kind of rubs us. It rubs us. And if we're willing to stop, as you all are, these deeper questions start to come clearer to us, clearer to the surface. What is this sitting dedicated to? Because we can forget in the middle of a sitting. What is this retreat dedicated to? What am I cultivating here? One teacher I had, a beautiful teacher, she's been practicing about 40 years now. She said, for the first 20 years, it was desperation that got her to practice. Her 
I don't know if that's good news or not for you. <laughs> 20 years? I was hoping seven days <laughs> would do it. Right? For the first 20 years, it was desperation. But something in her kept going. What in, it, in us? If you're new, you might be thinking, oh my goodness me, 20 years? We're all different, actually. But it was quite something to hear that from this very beautiful teacher who has a lot of depth, a lot of wisdom, a lot of clarity, a lot of heart. She's done the territory. I don't think she would say she's finished the territory. But she's covered some of the ground. And that can be another kind of heavenly messenger. right? Someone or something that inspires us. It might be a teacher, it might not be anyone who's ever heard of meditation. But someone that we recognize is awake. We know it when we come into contact with it. Even if our mind doesn't necessarily get it, Something in us resonates with the wakefulness of another being. Might be their openness. Might be their clarity. Might be their heart. Different things may come to the foreground. But something in us recognizes, oh, oh. Sometimes we recoil from that. I don't want to know too much about wakefulness, thank you. It can shake us up a little bit. But the very fact that you're all sitting here is that there's something that calls you to take this seat. I remember for myself, uh, there are different heavenly messengers along the path, but in this particular heading of inspiration, when I was 13, 14, 15, a lot of cousins who'd emigrated to Australia when I was very little came back to England and all of them, the boys, there were eight kids in the family, the four boys all spent a lot of time in India before they got to England, as is very common, especially 20 years ago or 30 years, how long ago, long time ago, 30 years ago, <laughs> time flies, 30 years ago. And there was something about these older boy cousins of mine that woke me up. They were a little different from my brothers, it seemed. There was something, and I put it down to the fact at the beginning that they'd been in India, there must be something magic there. And actually for many there is. Can wake us up. It's not inherent. Anything can wake us up actually. But at that time, they'd spent a lot of time there and something had opened and it was clear. And that left a, a trace of something to follow, something that inspired me, something I want to find out. I want to find out, what have you got? You know, what lights you up? So other beings can be heavenly messengers for us, whether or not they're teachers, they may be. They may be teachers for us. Books, 
talks, many, many things. We can read accounts of spiritual journeys and human journeys, journeys where people make great acts on behalf of the world that can really inspire us. We see it all the time if we're not only focusing on what's wrong with the world. There are many acts of great courage and beauty can inspire us. But in terms of Dharma, now particularly in terms of teachings and stopping and sitting and taking a look at this mind, we can be very inspired by what, what we read. Some people, reading is a great inspiration for them. It really lights them up. And that's beautiful. And there's a journey to be made from the reading about practice to the getting down on your bum and looking at your mind. And it doesn't normally look as glamorous as the books look in the beginning. It depends what books you read, actually. Right? And that's a journey that has to be made for each one of us, whether we're, we like books or not. But the journey from the intellectual reflection on teachings to the experiential daring willingness and courage to begin again. Mind starts moving, proliferating. Whole world is built in our mind. We see it. We drop back. We feel drawn in again. We keep coming back, we keep coming back, we keep coming back. We feel the feelings, we might feel the despair or the pain that's underneath all of that momentum. And we stop and we come back. And we keep going. We keep going. Sometimes what inspires us or motivates us, gets us onto the cushion, may not be the reflection on dukkha, or we may never have met someone or read anything that inspires us, but there may have been things in our life, experiences that have felt deep, have felt profound, where we've recognized something, where it's as if the veils that are normally occluding our perception of reality, are lifted temporarily perhaps. And we see something very clearly. And the knowing of that really never goes away. The experience will change, inevitably. But the knowing of that never really goes away and is like a beacon for us, something that draws us. And that's beautiful and can be something that can get us onto the cushion because we've seen something more deeply. We can't be quite so fooled by our ordinary lenses of liking this and not liking that and wanting some of this. And, and it takes skillful reflection to be with such things. Because if we're not careful, if any of you have had such things set some pe in some people's path where there can be something that's uh, 
very clear an opening. It's not everybody's path, and it doesn't have to be everybody's path. It's not actually better or worse. But where those things have opened the, the view, if we're not careful, we can start to make that which has inspired us and is like a beacon, we can start to make it into some kind of goal that we want to get back to. Oh yeah, when, back in 1991, that was good. Right, I'm going to sit and try and get there again. Right. And what started off as something opening becomes something that we grasp and the whole system shuts down again. Right. So it's just a... A little word of that, if that's relevant for you. One of my, sometimes we can think in insight meditation or spiritual circles that we're supposed to have big experiences. We're not necessarily. In fact, when one of my teachers was talking about that, I was asking him something about that a long time ago, and he said, Yep, the bigger the ego, the bigger the experience. Right? Oh. Right? It's more of a contrast. It's more of a contrast. The, the more the sense of ourself is very, very um, identified with, when something opens that, it's a big, big contrast. Others' past is much more apparently gradual. It's not so dramatic. It's like the story, if you know, in the New Testament, New Testament I think, of St. Paul on the road to Damascus. He has this very big experience. Like he falls off his donkey or whatever he's riding, he falls off. But it's the, it's the breaking, in a way, of the, sh- of the shell, of the mold that's there for him. One reflection that is very common through all the Buddhist lineages for our reflection, for motivation. Excuse me. is the theme of death. So highlighting that particularly out of those heavenly messengers, using it to reflect upon because if we skillfully reflect upon it, it can do a number of things. One is that it can bring some urgency to our practice. Right? If we really let it in, that the one guarantee for each one of us, human beings, is death, actually. We don't know when, where, how, but it's for, it's for sure, it's for certain. And with this in mind, if we bring this into the sitting with us, again, it's not to bring a depression or a despair. It's actually for us to fine-tune what is it then, given that this life is short, what is it that I want to cultivate? What is it that I want to dedicate this moment to so we're not fooled by ourselves? I have a friend who's a practitioner and a teacher and he has 
written on his wardrobe in his room, Death is everywhere. And this guy is very happy. Right? It's something about getting really clear. There's a beautiful piece, probably some of you know it. I haven't read this for years, but I found it again today. From Carlos Castaneda. Um, We're speaking about living with death as our advisor. And he's not talking so much about urgency. Urgency is one thing it can bring, but there are many benefits, actually. And he's... Yeah. It's so long since I've read those. I can't remember which one's which. Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan. Which one's which? Thank you. Thank you. Don Juan was the teacher. Carlos Castaneda was the student. So it's two Carlos Castaneda. Thank you. Death is your eternal companion. It will all. It is always the hunter, and it is always at your arm. Sorry, it is always to your left, at an arm's length. Kind of here. It has always been watching, and it always will until the day that it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know that death is here? The thing to do when you are impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice. From your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there with you. It is the only wise advisor that you have, and whenever you, whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and that you are about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women who live their lives as if death will never tap them. That bit touches me very much, that end bit. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness. You ever see that stuff in your mind? The cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women who live their lives as if death will never tap them. Ah, So what would that be to live with death? as our advisor. And there, in fact, in my own practice, before I even did any insight meditation, for months and months, the lineage that I was practicing in, I was only doing death reflections. I was only doing visualizations and reflections and practices, meditation practices about death and dying and the inevitability of it and the fact that that's the direction we're headed. And at that end, at the end of that period of practice, then coming into the meditation hall, it was clear what wanted to be cultivated at that moment. So it can be very useful reflection.
very useful. And you may have noticed in our walking room next door, have you seen our skeleton? Have you all been in? If you haven't been in, um, you might not want to go now, but you know there's a skeleton in there, but you also might want to go. And he is a real, he was, he is a real skeleton. He was a human being with flesh and bones like us. And he is there for our reflection. If you so choose, if this feels relevant and you feel right and ripe for going in and being with such a practice, it's not something to force ourselves to do. It's something that would come out of curiosity, out of interest, out of uh, a sense of, yeah, I think I want to do this. Not because it's a good Buddhist thing to do, but because something in you is, what is it like if I really sit with this reality? What happens when I sit across? You know, you sometimes can go there if you're awake at night or during the day. That might not be what you want to do if you're awake at night. <laughs> if you know that, that's fine. You don't have to go there. You can have a cup of tea. right? Go outside in nature. There are many things. It's not that, you know, sometimes we hear talks about dukkha and death and we can think, oh, right, the whole thing is about that. This is really a skillful means to support us. So if you take it on in that way, then something quite beautiful can blossom from that. Very different from this hand on your right shoulder that's pushing you and saying, right, go and sit. Go and be mindful. Go and practice. One woman, a practitioner of many years, she would describe that actually when she was outside and it wasn't practice time, she was, she was fine. As soon as she walked in the meditation hall door, she, she said she became a Dharma fascist, right? It's like, right, okay, put, right? Suddenly, this whole kind of persona arose that was trying to kind of push her into some kind of shape. And then, of course, there's the kickback and the reaction to that. It's like, ugh, we don't recognize it's our own mind doing it. We think it's, some, in the beginning, we think it's me doing it. Right, the teacher or the teachings or the place or but what's our mind doing with that? It's really important to recognise. It was you know, sometimes it, it feels we need that to get us on the cushion. But it's not a that nice a travelling companion for too long. Right? We start to see it doesn't it doesn't actually support us to relax, to breathe out, to open the heart. Ever tried to let the heart open in the environment of one of these minds? So I think it's almost time to finish. Oh no, it's a little bit longer. An important warning about practices that bring urgency or reflections that bring urgency. So the reflection on death, 
the sitting with the skeleton, reflecting on our own heavenly messengers that may have pulled the rug out from under our life. And we can sometimes sense, right, I've got to practice. I, there's really something I need to understand here. There's, I really want to cultivate this heart and mind now, this life. That can be very beneficial and beautiful. What we need to watch is where that gets hijacked by the sense of shock and trauma that many of us carry already in our nervous system from undigested shocks in our life, which if that reflection on urgency that genuinely wakes us up, I really want to practice, kind of coincides with our fear and our, right, I've got to do something here, right, got to practice, that what we find instead is what starts as a beautiful opening becomes something where we become rigid and fearful and tight. Both of those may, be ha- may happen, actually, and in the practice we can start to discern the difference. The urgency that leads onward, that allows me to settle, that really focuses my mind in such a way that I'm not distracted. doesn't mean your mind's not distracted, your mind will be distracted, but that there's a deeper thread that I'm not distracted from what's possible here. And where there's a sense of urgency as soon as somebody mentions mindfulness of breathing or death reflections, we become rigid and tight. To know for yourself what's true there. And if you become rigid and tight with reflections of urgency, needs a lot of gentleness, needs a lot of width. We want to breathe and widen and soften and get uh, kind of drop more back into the holding aspect of practice, not so much the, right, I've got to practice. We need to balance this capacity to focus and the goal and the clarity of our motivation with this wide open, holding, restful, graceful, spacious, delicate, fine attention. And so maybe you can know for yourself, do you tend more to the, right, okay, I'm going for it, and then find that you get tight and rigid? Or do you tend more towards the, ah, yeah, take it easy, put my feet up here, and then move towards the spacing out, disappearing, and you've completely forgotten about why you're here. And there's always a balancing, there's always a wise effort and discernment to find out what is the middle way with those those, those polarities, the clarity, the capacity to look deeply, to really be dedicated with with our and follow our motivation to follow our own thread of what we really want to dedicate this life to at the same time as resting back one teacher says practice as if you had 10,000 lifetimes to reach the goal but don't waste a moment right 
It's like, relax, relax. But don't waste a moment. So if you decide you want to go sit with uh, the skeleton, there are a number of ways that you can sit with him. You can simply reflect, here is a being just like myself who got up in the morning and needed to make a livelihood, most probably, and you know, needed to get fed and wash himself and have shelter and maybe take care of others. Just like me, those bones were once dressed with fleshy stuff and skin and sinews and the word tendons comes to mind, thinking of Martin in that moment. But all those, this human sensitive flesh, this is one just like me. And in fact, if you sit, notice, he's sitting in exact same posture as 30 of you in this room. He's cross-legged. So we can use the reflective mind to sit with him. Other times we can just sit and see what arises for us. See how we're impacted by letting in the reality of one very clear piece of the human predicament that this body will become bones only for a while before it crumbles further. And different people have reported different things. One person sat with him and just decided, just uh, waited to see what would happen. And he said what struck him What really struck him and touched his heart was the sheer nakedness of him first, of this man, but also then he felt the nakedness of the human predicament at all. We're very, on some level, very naked in the sense of vulnerable, sensitive creatures that can be easily impacted from the outside, from the inside. This, the vulnerability of the human predicament really struck him. Sometimes we like to try and make ourselves invulnerable, to not feel hurt, to not feel pain. But this organism is very sensitive. Have you noticed? And we've got this kind of our underbelly, our undercarriage is completely upright and very exposed. And we do our best sometimes to defend around that. But when death comes, there's not really any pretending anymore. There's a, one te- teacher of mine, a monk, he was sitting with one of his friends and students who was dying as she was dying. And one of the other nuns was around and said to him, you know, this is the no bullshit zone. 
And that's it. He said that was exactly right. It's the no bullshit zone. Whatever bullshit there's been doesn't hold up anymore. Whether it's our masks, our persona, our I'm like this and I'm not like that. Our, our ways of seeing ourselves in the world starts to get stripped away. And in practice, we're invited to let the no bullshit zone happen here and now. That some of that stripping away happens while we're alive so that we can wake up to what we are. That is not fabricated, that is not bullshit. that is not constructed, that is not just the history repeating itself. That is part of our practice of learning to make a space for that history to come into the present to be healed. But that's very different than living through that lens. So this is the practice of the reflection on death. which on the one hand is a very sounds like a very serious business. You might still be sitting there thinking, I came for peace and harmony. Right? I wasn't expecting this. But actually the way to peace and harmony, if we're interested, to real peace and harmony, is through this radical honesty and a radical encounter with what's here. So right from the beginning of the talk, those moment, those movements, those, those um, how did Stephen describe it, the currents, the forces of the mind that as we stop, we start to see it. And if we sit here long enough, we can't kid ourselves anymore. It's like, wow, look at that. Initially, we'll try and, you know, blame someone for it or... Say it's because of the lunch or, you know, it's because somebody looked at me funnily in the corridor. But actually, the suffering is here. And if we're interested to see it, then there's that stopping and, and with a, a kind of an honesty that has a lot of room for our humanity in it. There's no judgment in any of this. There can't be. Actually, if, there's, if we start to judge ourselves, do you know what happens when you start to judge yourself? Probably you've seen it already today. If you start to judge what's in your mind, anyone had any self-judgment today? <laughs> yeah, quite a few hands go up. Yeah. When we start judging ourselves for what's here, it it. It's like cutting ourselves in a way. It cuts us from our very own lifeblood, our own deep goodness. Even if what we're seeing is not my goodness, I'm seeing my what we might call our badness. The judgment on that, because it doesn't fit, it doesn't... I don't like it, it's painful. The judgment shuts the whole thing down and we try and get somewhere else. We'll, I'll take a look a little bit more at that later. 
So this encounter that is both radically honest and deeply, deeply human, with a human mercy. Somebody reminded me of that word today, this mercy for our own struggle, for our own knots and twists and turns in the mind. There are many more ways to reflect on things that bring that support the motivation and inspiration. And I won't speak about them tonight because it's enough now. But we'll, maybe we'll get there in the week. So just in, by way of uh, summing up, how reflecting on motivation in this way can take us back to that willingness to come and sit and look at this mind. Maybe that's clear to you right now. Maybe it's not clear. How does sitting with the skeleton, how does reflecting on death, how does remembering what inspires me, how does that help when my knees hurt, when my mind's screaming, when I want to be anywhere else but here? How does all that help? Well, one thing is that when your knees are hurting and your mind is screaming and you want to be anywhere else but here, has anyone had any of those today? Yeah. Reflecting on our motivation can be part of the support, actually. Because the motivation, it's not like it's headline in front of us, like an advertising board in every moment. Sometimes we need to remember it, to reflect upon it, to bring it forth to remind us, oh yeah, what am I doing here? where we can start to separate the motivations that open us and lead us onward from the motivations that close us down, like the motivation that says, there's something wrong with me, I need to fix myself. That can be a motivation to practice. But it's a motivation that is a dead end. That this Dharma practice is not actually self-help. It's not self-improvement or about fixing something. It's a reconnection with something that we've forgotten, something that we've lost touch with. It's a realization of something that is more fundamental than fixing anything, that all views that come from believing there's someone that needs fixing is a view based in a delusion that there's something wrong with me. And more later on that. So I'll finish with a poem, I think, if I have it. called The Peace of Wild Things. 
one of the ways practice is described, this isn't the poem, is that we're coming to know things as they are, no longer fooled by by our ideas about how things are. We're coming in to understand the nature of things as they are. And the nature which we are is a big teacher. And this poet is talking about the peace of wild things. He says, When despair for the world comes upon me, and I awake at the slightest sound, in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be. I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water, and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with the forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. When despair for the world comes upon me and I wake at the slightest sound, In fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with the forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Okay. So please take some time for walking. We'll... um, Tell you a couple of things. I've I've gone over the time slightly, so we'll have twenty minutes for walking. Please go outside into the not quite yet night sky. It's a long time to wait before the the day blind stars come. You have to stay up late this time of year, and we'll come back at nine for a short sitting to end the day. It says till nine thirty. Um, It's the first day, and we're usually a little more gentle on you on the first day. So come, we'll have a short sitting to end the evening. And the schedule for tomorrow is a little different. Um, It's it will be it's on the other side of the one out there. It will be turned around shortly. Um, We have a wake up instead at six fifteen. So we start to um, turn the heat up, get you up a bit earlier. Um, It says wake up and exercise. So please do wake up and do something to invigorate your body. Um, Go for a brisk walk, do your yoga, jiggle around a bit. Um, Really wake up the cells so that when you come for the sitting at 6.45, you're awake. And um, even if 
your normal exercise, one of my teachers says, it does not count as exercise when you hear the wake-up bell and you roll over to the other side of the bed. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> there's, there's quite, it's, it's quite a practice for some of us. Not everyone. Some people hear the wake-up and they just get up. It's a well-established uh, pattern for them can be a wholesome one. For some of us, it's a really interesting and useful new habit to cultivate on retreat of hearing the wake-up bell and don't start negotiating. <laughs> There's a real freedom in no negotiation. So it's wake-up bell, wake up, get up, move your body. Okay, so please take time for walking and we'll meet back in 20 minutes. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.